Oh, hello, Tina. It's been a while. How have you been? Pretty good, hanging in there. Right now there's a heat wave, so I'm trying to keep cool. How are you? I'm also trying to keep cool. The Colorado sun is no joke. Some people are like, oh, we live a mile closer to the sun, and it makes a difference, and apparently they are very correct. I think I'm burning for the first time in my life, in my skin, my beautiful melanin skin. Well, make sure you do that skincare, extra skincare. Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, I follow um, Mia Kang on, I think, at your behest, right, on Instagram. And she always posts these amazing skincare routines that I've started to just buy some of, like, uh, the products that she's been getting. Because she, I think, now lives in a desert climate. And I'm like, I need this. I need to moisturize my skin. I need to take care of myself. I am no longer a child. And I need to, need to up the ante on my own personal care. Um and the, I think the other thing that I've been doing is, like, she also posts so much stuff that I love about the recent rise in visibility of the anti-Asian hate crimes that we're seeing. And I love that she's being a public figure and really bringing a voice and um, kind of visibility into what, what's been happening. Absolutely. Uh, Mia King is goals in, like, so many areas. <laughs> and um, as you mentioned with her um, raising awareness of the rise of the anti-Asian hate crimes, I think she also makes it a point to say that this is not anything new. And this has been happening since our ancestors came um, and first, you know, came to America. And that um, this rise in anti-Asian hate, like, stems from that history and, like, to even know that history, too, I think is super important um, for our community, for families. Super important. And I think that rise of, like, families um, being really a part of the healing of those who get attacked is a, a really inspirational thing, uh, especially since a lot of the folks that have been targeted for the anti-Asian hate crimes have been the elderly, right? The elderly or the folks that are, I remember one man who's just picking up cans on the street, right? And trying to make a living for his family during the time of COVID and the pandemic. And there are so many different ways that I think as Asian American families have migrated to the States that they have been trying to forge away from themselves and find ways to establish capital, build communities and really thrive in what was promised as the American dream. Um, and I wonder if you can hear it on the on the audio, but I think we've got a little bird on the line as well. Who is joining us today? The super, super wonderful Michelle Chen is here <laughs> with us today, and she's she's here to shed more light and tell her her story, her family story. You know, what, like literally what we just talked about, and and like how that how family and community um, is very much interlinked. Um, so I'll I'll hand it over to Michelle to introduce herself. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much, Tina and Ploy, for having me on the show. I am super honored to be here. Um, when you said bird, I was like, do you hear the birds behind me? Because <laughs> I do have my window open. So, <laughs> oh, uh, I didn't realize you were talking about me. <laughs> 
how lovely. Um, okay, so in true, you know, interstice fashion, um, we also asked our guests to share some factoids about them. So, um, Michelle, what would you like our listen listeners to learn about you, to know about you? Um, let's see. So, I feel like not too much has been going on with COVID uh, and the pandemic in the past year, but uh currently I'm living out in the Bay Area with my wonderful boyfriend and um, our dog that we d- adopted, Butters, um, in the past year. He's been kind of just like uh, the reason why the pandemic was um, something to for us to like wake up every day, just to, like take care of him. Um, so uh, things are going well. Um uh, really excited about things opening up again, being able to go out and like meet people and um, eat a lot of food, um, even though we had been eating uh, a lot of takeout at, uh, in the past year. But anyways, um, and now really excited to talk more about food th- uh, tonight with y'all here. Oh, yeah. What, who doesn't love to talk about food? I'm, I'm curious, Michelle, how, how has Butters been? In, have you taken him to any restaurants or bars or anything now that things have opened up since he's a pandemic puppy? And I think pandemic puppies don't get socialized like normal pup, normal time puppies do. Yeah, we definitely tried to get him as socialized as possible. Um, he loves other dogs. Like, he goes crazy at the dog park. Um, we really need to get a second dog with him. Uh, but he's actually out right now. Um, I, uh, we went out to get some drinks and um, some dinner with some friends, and uh, they're still out. Uh, and he's doing really well um, at the outdoor patio spaces that we bought him to so far. Oh, what a good boy. I always tell people that I'm so ashamed of Buns because he, um, there's like a period of time in which he was sick and I had to feed him like, they're like, oh, if your dog is sick, feed them chicken and rice, like a simple meal to stave off the diarrhea. And my dog would eat all the chicken and none of the rice. And I was like, I have failed you as an Asian mother that you do not want to eat the rice in your food. I was so upset by that. Um, and I think one I've been noticing in like the meals that I've been cooking lately is like rice is such a pri like I don't know strong base ingredient to everything we eat. Um, so I'm wondering like one, what is y'all's history? I don't know with Asian food in your life. One, and then what your favorite rice dish? Two. Tina, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, favorite rice dish? Well, I don't know, because it's almost like every dish, right? Like, it's the complementary, um, like, partner in crime to every, every other dish that is paired with it. And, um, I think it's, it's also this, like, um, interesting shared, uh, like ingredient like um food that everyone has um and then like uh everyone else also partakes in like uh, like the communal like family dish um so I don't know I I feel like it goes well with 
a lot of things. It's meant to go well with a lot of things. It's like kind of your base, but I do really especially enjoy it with braised pork belly because braised pork belly is like made to be like just slightly saltier so that you do eat it with rice, which is this like, you know, um, like, uh, like, like blank slate kind of thing. Um, so just simple braised pork belly on top of rice with, with, you've got to have the sauce on top of it too. So that would be my choice. What about you, Michelle? Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Like there's no like specific rice dish. It's just like such a foundational piece to the meal. Um, I also like rice on its own. <laughs> like, I could eat a lot of rice even without um, the actual, like, side dishes. <laughs> well, I call them the side dishes, even though they're, like, the full-on main dishes. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I feel like rice is, like, a like kind of like a cleansing palate. Like, it cleanses your palate. Um, it balances things out and just, like, adds that... Um, opportunity for you to kind of like take a break from all of the different flavors from all of the different uh dishes in your meal um and just like uh supplements it so well and I love that one of the things that when you get like like takeout right there's always like that you know that typically you'll always get that box of rice which is like that reassuring <laughs> big thing. It's like, okay, I've got my base. I've got my home base. I know where all these foods should go. Um, and I think one of the things that has been frustrating in seeing the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes and also kind of the, the blame that's going along to the Asian community about um, wet markets being the origin of COVID-19 and this misplaced anger of all equally as a people being displaced as a year. I think that is really frustrating because it's like, I bet you, if we were to look at the numbers, how many people were getting Asian takeout during the duration of this pandemic that they are doing that people feel like they are comfortable with um, literally stabbing elderly Asian women in the street today? It's harrowing um, to see and like even hear about these um, violent hate crimes, especially it, towards such a vulnerable um, demographic of our community. It, I feel like it takes a certain um, type of feeling to attack an elderly person and I, I really wonder about that sometimes like what 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 does that mean and what does that mean for our culture um, too because when we when we look at um, Asian culture and like look at it through a, a lens of like um, what is who is respected and how our family our family like dynamics and um like understanding of of like what what makes us a community like respect your ancestors like pay homage to your ancestors respect your elders like that is like one of the most like top tenants of Asian communities and to see that they are the most attacked demographic is very painful um, especially painful 
Um, and you know, the way that I, one of the ways that I deal with it is to or aggressively order more Chinese food from, uh, from Chinese restaurants and like Asian restaurants. I don't, I don't know, like, I don't know how y'all have been coping with it. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you have any strategies, I would love to know. Yeah, definitely. It's it's really just like, I feel the same way. It's very oh, tragic to to see all of these events happening, all of these incidents, and um, to the most vulnerable, to one of the most vulnerable populations in our community. Um, and I really don't have the right answer <laughs> to your questions, you know, because I'm also figuring out the right way to like cope with it because I think about like. My family members, they live in Queen. Uh, a lot of them live in Queens and New York, and they they go to Flushing all the time. And a lot of incidents have happened in Flushing, New York. Um, and it's just like it, it feels out of control. Like there's not much that you can do about it, despite like people talking about it, despite the laws um, or uh, directives that are being enabled right now um, through the government side. Um, it's still, it, it doesn't seem like it's it's stopping or, uh, which is just like the most disappointing um, thing about it. Uh, but I do really like his strategy of ordering a lot of Chinese food. <laughs> I definitely support that. Um, I love to order out a lot um, and definitely like Chinese and Asian food is um, my top choice. Michelle, you've been on the opposite end of it as well, not just on the receiving end of ordering the food, but your family is a restaurant, is that right? Can you tell yes. us a little bit about your family's story there? Yeah, um, so my family has been in the restaurant business for almost um, more than 20 years now, uh, since they've... Um, Pretty soon after they immigrated to the U.S., uh, my my parents immigrated in the mid 1980s, along with most of my dad's side of the family. Um, and from the very beginning, uh, they were in the restaurant business. Um, they learned from others uh, in their communities uh, as to like how to run a, biz a restaurant business on their own, and then um, found opportunities for them to to actually get going um, and own a restaurant themselves. And since then, um, I grew up in, in a restaurant as my second home. Um, like my my mom is still running her business uh, back in Chicago. And um, me and my, my sisters have been a huge part of um, helping out whenever we are at home, uh, whenever we're back home. Um, so I've done things from answering phones, hosting, uh, waiting tables, all of that. Um, and yeah, it continues to this day. I'm very excited to visit your family, to rudely interrupt and just barge into your home. Be like, hello, I'm here. I'm Michelle's friend. Please, please feed me. <laughs> my <laughs> mom would love that. <laughs> That's great. I and I'm wondering, like, if you've been, if your family, how has your family reacted to the news of the recent events? Um, it's been kind of conflicting. 
to be honest and transparent, I think it's a hard topic to talk about and discuss. Um, and I'm sure my family is not the only family that uh, is like that. Um, I definitely like me and my sisters have uh, been like, we know what's going on. We are very concerned and very um, honestly like scared uh, for what could be happening what could happen um, since it's it's unpredictable. Um, and so we just try and watch out for our parents, our, um, the elders in our family and just like keep touch with them as, as much as possible. That's been difficult in my family talking about it too. And in most cases, I feel like in for my generation, we tend to talk about it more. And then from my generation to my parents, it's like, we don't kind of, I don't, so I'm like, still unsure what type of media they consume. But the media that I consume is like, Instagram media. Um, because like, there was a period of time where a lot of um, what was happening wasn't being reported in like mainstream media. Um, and so I like had to go seek out, um, AKA via Mia Kang, <laughs> like these like media, out- like, um, Instagram media outlets. I don't even know if there's like a name for that now, but like, um, Instagram media outlets that like focused on, um, Asian to- like topics regarding Asians or Asian Americans and, um, it's almost as if like we don't really talk about it but then the the inadvertent way I talk about it is like oh please be careful out there you know like there's a pandemic and um you know like people are getting hurt and so it kind of gets like lost in translation that way um and yeah I'm still trying to work on getting better at vocalizing what's happening without creating fear, um, but then also without not facing reality. And so I just try to go everywhere with them, but it's not possible. It's not possible. So it's like, so very challenging. Absolutely. And I, I plus one on everything you said about Instagram being a form of just awareness at this point. I think it's a really good tool and mechanism for visibility as is TikTok and some of these other modern social media platforms that aren't Facebook, which is what apparently now the olds use. But I still use it. Am I old? I don't know how that works. But um, one of the things that I found really interesting in in that same vein, another person that you introduced, Athena, I think I just get everything from you and then I follow the same things you follow on Instagram. <laughs> Um, but one of the things that you had sent me was from this uh, activist who acts through his food. So the god of cookery, Clarence. Uh, oh, my gosh. I can't remember his last name. Clarence Kwan. Kwan. And he, I know everybody by their handles. Um, so he had posted this. Uh, posted this post about one of the contestants on MasterChef UK uh, named um, Philly Armitage Martin Matten. I also don't know how to spell her name. I just don't know names. Um, but she, but she had been kind of touting herself as a, um, a chef that really was good at making uh, dirty, like good dirty food or something like that. And she calls 
I think in Reese, she did a really terrible thing of like basically indirectly calling Asian food dirty and then not taking responsibility for making that association and then taking that blame to heart. And I think um, Clarence Klein does a really wonderful job of like exposing it through social media. And then of course, backlash, right? From people in uh, on her own webpage. And then I think the uh, thing that we all expect right now, which is the apology that comes after. And for us and in this movement, it's like, that is the point that is the really like the important focal point like how do you apologize do you recognize what you did wrong and do you recognize why the thing that you said that was incorrect was hurtful you know none of that (laughs) none of that came to be at all but I think in its effectiveness right it's like okay but the most unbenign thing is like she like takes it off her profile whatever um but more importantly it just like I think demonstrated the power of what it is when you do focalize that attention in a way that like can can make change in some way or make someone realize something whether or not they want to but it does it raises that issue to light I think in a really powerful way and I think for a lot of um Asian families like food is like our common language right I think about sitting around the table having the lazy Susan who I personally think is quite hard working that bitch is spinning you know what I'm saying uh and you're like sharing foods with one another um so I don't know I don't really know where I'm going with this but like that's one of the things I definitely um definitely think about like how do we like how dare people celebrate or try to take Asian cuisine without giving it the, the credit it deserves as well as like throwing it under the bus of being it's gotta be cheap it's gonna be whatever um and and not doing, I think, the thing that is central to my experience in it, which is the community and the sharing and the fact that we are nurturing and feeding one another. Here, here. Huzzah! <laughs> Plus sign to everything you said. Um, I'm curious, uh, Michelle, as like a daughter of a restaurateur, like, wh- what do you think about this, you know, MasterChef contestant who, you know, describes herself as an Asian specialist and you know her approach to cooking is to refine dirty food and she you know labels Chinese food as dirty which you know there's no coincidence in um this like demonization of um Asians and their food like bat soup as the rise for COVID which is like completely a hoax but you know like everyone wants to want to make like fusion Asian food at the same time so I'm I'm really curious like from your point of view like how do you read that yeah it's that's a really good question because it just ties into a lot of different things it's it's more complicated than um as you would see at first well first of all I definitely am against the fact that Asian food is being called dirty or disgusting or negative in any way because food, like Koi was saying, like food is like our love language. It's more than just sustenance. It's it's how like my mom talks uh, shares her love through through she like loves ta- loves cooking for us. She spends her day off cooking for us even though she's been (laughs) working at the restaurant like 12 hours a day almost um every day besides the one day that she has off um because she wants to provide 
that love to us by her cooking and it's like the food that she cooks I can't do it like I can't cook it like her and it just means a lot when I'm home and she can cook me like these what we call like cc nian which is like really thin noodles uh that you can't you can't get at a like at a restaurant um it's really special noodles from our from my ancestors hometown and province and so uh i guess going back to the point of when someone goes and says this food is dirty like i definitely very much so take offense at it as far as like asian fusion and like the authenticity of asian food I feel like my opinion on it has evolved over time. Um, and that's what makes it really complicated as far as like where that line is, because it's it's so fuzzy. What you can call authentic versus what you can call an evolution of Asian food. It has to do with the heritage, the, the history of the, the dishes and like also who is making and cooking and uh, profiting off of the food. So there's a lot of these different nuances that makes it more complicated than just saying, oh, I, I'm for or against fusion food. And I'm still trying to deal with it my own. So I'm curious what, it, what y'all have thoughts on a fusion food and like the authenticity of Asian food I. I'm a reform militant anti-fusionist. <laughs> Is that what it, maybe we were the entire title. So I used to be so against the idea of fusion foods. Like, don't, how dare you throw a basil into this like chicken salad and then call it Thai chicken salad. Come on. Like that's just, and it was just, I think my complaint about things being called Thai and seeming lazy. <laughs> if I'm like, psychoanalyzing the situation but more importantly I I think in my own understanding my own misunderstanding of what fusion was which I had associated with the corruption of something that I call considered original or authentic which is another thing to unpack right like then we just like oh man uh I was like oh shit I guess everything I eat in Asian culture is fusion food because we've been like colonized like a bajillion times except Thailand but technically all (laughs) of Asian nations colonized several uh several times so thus everything is fusion I think about a banh mi which is like fucking maybe the best sandwich that has ever existed in this world right (laughs) uh that is fusion food or like uh any Filipino food spam wasabi technically fusion oh my gosh what have I been doing I am still the militant, (laughs) I'm still the militant, like, hell no to fusion food. And the reason why I am still hell no is because the people who still benefit from fusion food, who are defining fusion food, are still the people who are benefiting off the backs of the people of color who, um, created this cuisine that deserves to be valued and desire not just desired but like um valued monetarily and culturally to be significant and when i taste like fusion food and 
I'm like, oh, uh, like, I feel like I know when it's like considered fusion and like not considered fusion. Like somehow my taste buds have a moral compass and I have to thank my parents for this refined palate. (laughs) But really, I think it comes down to like who's benefiting here. And my honest opinion is uh, people who are not from that culture, people who don't actually take the time to understand that culture, they don't learn the the hard technique, the very skilled technique and like understanding in terms of like history, like what Michelle was saying of the dish and like why it's like prepared this way and when it's eaten, in what season, what holiday, like all those like cultural nuances are, you know, left to not be learned. And then you get something that's just like gimmicky and you can taste that. And so I'm still (laughs) that person, boy, (laughs) where it's like until people of color and, and that history is honored, like, and that changes for fusion food. I'm still on that train. <laughs> All right. But, Tina, ride that train. I don't know. Now I'm like half on, half off, bitch. I don't know where I'm sitting now. Like, um, I, okay, like I, I can be changed. You know, like my, my opinion can be changed. And like, I hope it evolves that way. Like, I honestly do. Because I think... You know, when 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 Michelle talks about the evolution of food, like that's what we want. That's all. We, that's all of us want. That we want good food, and that we need to pay history and homage to our 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 past and like understand where we come from, so that we can move forward. And I think people who benefit mostly from fusion, like they don't they don't do the work, and it really shows. Plus one, yeah, for sure, like. I think maybe it's 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 a difference of what we're calling fusion. Like if you're saying that it's fusion, you're not calling it authentically, historically like Chinese food, right? Does that make it better <laughs> than than saying that oh it's not fusion food even though it's not really it, it's not really like the traditional like recipe cooked by someone from that culture. Maybe that's the like the thing to consider here what what is what they're really saying what it is if they're calling it authentically what it really is fusion versus authentic food that's a lot of authentics right there but if yeah. you get what i'm saying loaded ass term though michelle sure for sure about authenticity right uh because it's like authentic from whose perspective and i appreciate tina's perspective because it's like that's what like she said like this this not only the homage to the cultural uh nuances as well as the technical like prowess that is like i don't know if you've really tried to char those noodles like that shit is hard as shit i've burnt a many uh ruined many a walk in my lifetime that shit is hard and i think more importantly like the fact that there that means that there is no financial gain for actually improving the lives of asian families is like hard right like that i i really appreciate that like impact focused perspective tina because i think that's really important to remember as we talk about these issues it's like to whom's description of authenticity are we subscribing to because if white supremacist culture describes that level of authenticity then everything we do is inauthentic because it is other wise foreign or scary or something that needs to be controlled so i think that uh, that's a really good 
good point to have. And more importantly, I think, I don't know. I want to ask you this. Uh, one of the, well, background, one of the things John and I are really doing in Colorado and enjoying doing is like going to like small towns in the middle of nowhere and going to like a the Asian food place, right? <laughs> to go and, and like not only sit oftentimes at a mom and pop shop, but to like get to know them a little bit and hear their story. And I think that's been wonderful, especially because mm-hmm. Colorado is like hella white. Like it's crazy white here. Michelle, I'm actually curious about the families that live around you. Is it uh, crazy white out there? Yes. Well, as far as like, not currently since I'm in Piedmont, Oakland area. Uh, well, actually, like Piedmont's kind of white. But <laughs> as far as like where my my parents' restaurants um, and my family's restaurants are, it's definitely like dominantly white. So that has had an impact with like my like background and my um, experiences have been in being a person of color uh, with a family who's in um, the business restaurant industry growing up and that does affect like how I feel about people viewing like Chinese food in a certain way. How how do they view Chinese food out there? I'm I'm curious like what yeah maybe stories or like um, yes point of views that that you've like maybe have over the years as like the 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 restaurant you know from decade to decade like two decades I think like I'm super curious yeah um so I would say first of all like my family came into the restaurant business not because they were cooks it was because it was a means of survival um coming to the U.S. um not having many other resources the restaurant business was something that their networks had um, knowledge about. So they were able to learn from just like distant relatives who were in the, the restaurant business, take on like known recipes, Chinese American recipes that knew uh, they knew were profitable. So the menu at my family's restaurants are very much so Chinese American, not traditionally. Chinese food because things like sweet and sour chicken and fried rice and well fried rice is still we still eat it (laughs) Um, but uh, things things like General Tso's chicken it's not something that came out of China Um, it's definitely something that grew from the from Chinese American food but it's it's customized it's made for the American palate Um, so a lot of our dishes uh, what I've seen are very so much like customizable. People come in, they get to choose like, oh, I want a dish that is like kung pao uh, styled, but I wanted to choose like chicken or pork or, um, or any other meat. I don't want it to be super spicy. I can make it super mild. And that's another way that I see of this theme of adapting to how you can survive in your environment because you you kind of you have to cater to who can provide you <laughs> the money that uh and who's willing to like pay for the food and things that you're providing a service to tina's on mute and so while she's on mute i'm going to get, get my chance to do it right. <laughs> so yeah I, one 
thank you for sharing that, Michelle. And I think more importantly, well, I'm curious as to how that's how that's like dissolved into how you feel amongst your sisters and and in relation to your own individual lives and the business. Yeah, as far as the business goes, I <laughs> I don't have like any really aspirations to like be in the restaurant business to be honest and I don't think any of my sisters really do my my parents also don't want us to be in the restaurant business knowing like how difficult it is to be in it uh so again this goes to show like they really supported us in pursuing our education pursuing what we want to do our lives um professionally um, and personally and and not like pushed us towards the restaurant business which I think if we wanted to I'd, I'm sure like they would support us but it was definitely not something that is forced upon us mm-hmm. I like that you phrase it I think I've met a lot of people in my lives with families that also have things like restaurants or gas stations liquor stores laundromats right for example as small businesses and oftentimes it's like what you said launch a launch pad and I think that's like the wonderful wealth of the immigrant family experience as well it's like making sure that you can progress that wealth into your community through your children and something that I love that you tell Tina is this this like ability and concept of passing wealth in a community would you could you repeat yourself Oh yeah, so I'm I'm reading this this book, The Making of Asia America, and I had learned that, you know, once the first wave of uh, mostly Chinese immigrants who worked on the railroads in California, um, when their contract ended, when the railroad was built, you know, they they stayed there and they tried to look for more work, but because they were willing to work for lower wages, um, even though there was demand for that cheap labor, uh, there were still many laws and also discrimination that uh, these early immigrants were facing. And so what happened is that the means for survival was for them to build their own businesses. Um, And so we see a lot of maybe that history of Asian businesses being donut shops, laundromats, as like Ploy mentioned, restaurants, liquor stores, gas stations, like these are all um, opportunities that um, rose from need and that like this community filled. And one thing that the, the author wrote in the book was that this is how Chinatowns formed and how communities became, you know, that support network and providing goods and services and keeping that money cash flow within Chinatowns to support one another. And like, if that's not community, I don't know what is. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, like, uh, to a certain point, I feel like for Chinese restaurants to be, you know, very much a part of American culture now, like Panda Express, that adaptation to 
the white majority palette is, you know, as Michelle mentioned, is how how our communities have survived. And, and now it's about like branching out of that, right? And I think Michelle touched upon that, like with her, her family story is like branching out of like businesses for survival and then to the next level of like opportunity, which is like defining that opportunity for yourself as opposed to just having a selected few ways to make a living. And then I was on mute for this like small period of time, but I really wanted to react to something like brilliant Michelle said about like her family restaurant and how you know food as a means of survival and how they were able to adapt to that American palate and you know like provide customers with customization right if anything Chinese American food is fusion that's my provocation it's fusion done right because the money and benefit goes back to the community, the people of color that like literally invented Chinese American food to establish this like survival and then like Panda Express empire (laughs) of like chicken candy and how like really, you know, we, we realize that to adapt is to survive And that's the true fusion food to me is like that wealth goes back to our community and we take all the monies. Wow. Mad capitalistic both ways, Tina. I think if it's fusion, give us money. This is fusion. Give us money. I'm like down for that. (laughs) That's the way. Cream, right? That's how that works. I wonder, I wonder like about technique too. Like I, I think, I think Pan Express, yes, they do a good job of franchising Chinese American food. And but I think the beauty of like smaller shops or restaurants is like the nuances. Like you're likely not going to get the same dish exactly the same way unless it's like really familiar folks sharing recipes, right? Like that's a communal aspect as well. Um, and I think like the technique is is the my favorite part of like uh, about like ma- matching and pairing flavors or like quantity and the way you cook certain ingredients. Um, and I think about like Asian cooking techniques and my mom's cleaver and how she fucking uses it for everything. Um, it can apparently do everything. Get yourself a nice cleaver and never need another knife again. Um, but the the way that like she goes through about her cooking then I watch something on like the food network and they're like julienning carrots and I'm like why don't you ever like why isn't there like Asian cooking technique shows or why isn't it as glamorized as it is like French cuisine I think it's because like Asian food hasn't been valued until it started to grace the covers of Bon Appetit magazines um, and it's going back to that history of cheap labor. If a Chinaman is, you know, cooking this, which is like back then in China, like a woman's job, like men who came to build railroads, they became chefs. Like there was a transition there, you know, that was women's work. And so if a, if a quote unquote Chinaman was like serving this to me, like it must be cheap. And, it, you know, like, cause you know, Chinamen are, are 
are paid cheap labor. But that, like, that is, like, a a product of, like, many things. But the the technique there is, like, often overlooked because of that dollar amount. And how does the learning of making food happen at, at your restaurant, Michelle? Yeah, like, it's not like we are hiring people coming from, like, culinary school <laughs> with all of the uh, techniques taught to them by, like, highly accredited um, programs or anything like that. It, for, for my experience for our restaurants, it's typically just passed along within just like the restaurant, like the the recipes are taught and just like kind of picked up and like um, you learn on the job. It's it's not like you have formally like gotten training um, outside of being on the job and getting that sort of like learning. So I think it's a really interesting point how it's that that is perhaps like a factor into Um, how people perceive the value of Chinese food. Yeah, like if you can't commoditize the technique, then, you know, why should society pay for it at a premium? And, you know, this is where I hope it evolves as, you know, Chinese, not even just Chinese food, like Asian food is being more explored by people of color and also non-people of color is that we really bring it to the level that it deserves of like centuries of testing, uh, like what's good and whatnot. It really needs to be put in its rightful place. And I hope as much as it's maybe not good for my wallet, (laughs) I'm I'm willing to pay for that. Yeah, for sure. It's like, I, I don't want Chinese food or Asian food to be perceived as something that is like cheap, even though it has been um when you think about like when when I go out and like get takeout or eat at a restaurant at the moment it is less expensive than other types of food but that definitely doesn't mean that we should devalue Asian food and so I definitely want to be there too to see like um people starting to definitely see the value of like Asian food and see like it's not something that's like easily made and capitalized on capitalism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even Ali Wong like like leans into this this, right? Like and I I I also have done that where it's like if it's cheap, it means it's good, right? Like um and I, I get that and I recognize that and I'm like, why can we all like all the restaurants like come together and be like, we are going to raise our price like <laughs> like all together I don't know I don't know I just think like this needs to be yeah this needs to be reckoned with and then also I like going kind of going back to like the value of food and then technique how come there's there's like no recipe cards like nothing is written down to like the tea and it's all about feeling and like smell and like utilizing your five senses to like know when it's right and like it's really difficult <laughs> I don't know if, I, if y'all have tried to like emulate your parents cooking it's so yeah. capacity it's just so different it's so hard actually this is something that I was thinking because um, I do like to cook. Um, I 
definitely rely on recipes that I find online. But for like Asian food recipes, do you do you consider like where are you finding those recipes? Because there's there's definitely one like Asian family um, um food blog uh, that I I tend to go to because I trust them that they are Chinese they know how to cook Chinese food, but then there are also times where like I use a recipe that's coming from like definitely not uh someone with an Asian background writing that recipe but I still that's that's how I work <laughs> in terms of cooking I need a recipe to to get me to like cook the food are you yeah. talking about walks of life yes yes <laughs> yes I I I love their website like how they like talk about their the story behind the recipes like I'm I'm all for it I, I love that that recipe website yeah I I like just discovered YouTube because I'm from the previous century uh so (laughs) I'm just like so we're like been using YouTube to to source recipes and we're like (laughs) John and I were both like why haven't we been doing this for years we're so stupid (laughs) um so there's this one family called Made with Lao, and these are classic Chinese recipes. They release every Friday. If you have not seen this show, you're missing out on all of the heartstrings being pulled. Like the father's former restaurateur is like trying to teach all the rest the recipes he taught at his restaurant, and we've made them, and they're like so good. Um, and then there's a little baby in there too. It's like the most fucking wholesome thing. And don't we need like a little bit of that love in our lives right now? So I highly recommend Made with Lao. And I forgot uh, what I was going with this other than I wanted to like burst with love for this and have <laughs> you know about it. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Goodbye. Good night. I'm just kidding. Michelle and I were like, huh? What? We're done? We have so much more to talk about. <laughs> I know, I feel like there's so much that we can cover that we haven't even covered. I think I want to cover just one more thing, if anything, before we wrap up. Is that cool with y'all? We talked a lot in in our time together about fusion food, authenticity, technique, value, and how all of these things could really be parts of parts of like a whole cultural experience and in a country like America and how having that experience and carrying that with you to see the things that are acts of violence done against our community make it really hard to exist and feel safe in a place that most families are only trying to get a living. What is your opinion on when fusion food is exploitative or when it might be something empowering like making Asian American sorry Chinese American cuisine like I thought that was an empowering story yeah I I really loved what Tina said earlier about how Chinese American food is the ideal fusion food because it's bringing it back to um, the Chinese American community and in that way it's not it doesn't seem exploitative and it at the same time, it is empowerment. Like it's allowing for families who need a means to survive in this country to be able to do it and really develop and grow and find their roots um, in in America and go beyond where they are currently at. And I think that's that really encompasses it. It is something that is definitely 
thoughtfully done something that you're not saying that this is you're not losing the heritage and the history of um what is uh what is tradition then in that way i don't think you would be exploiting fusion food and definitely the empowerment point is who is being empowered that was wonderfully said i i can't i can't imagine can't possibly add anything more salient than and illuminating than what Michelle just said. I guess if I could just try to add one more thing, it it would be it would be that food is political and don't tell me that I'm making everything about politics and race. It is all intertwined and if we peel back the layers, the many, many layers, we will see that white supremacy is at the root of society and food is an integral part of our society. So food is just one lens in which we can examine white supremacy and how it permeates through everything. And and I think it's it's so apparent with this COVID era and how the origins, quote unquote, of COVID is about markets, food, a bat soup, and then a like result of that is um, Chinatown restaurant businesses closing down because of that. Their means of survival being taken away from them. So yeah, that would that would be my stance on exploitation is that we need to name white supremacy for what it is and the colonizer mentality and how that has, how that has shaped a lot of how we see food, how we view food, how we eat food, and and why we should be cognizant of it. I love what you've both said. So I, I think if we think about it in terms of like, what are some ways to frame it or understand this type of um, thinking? It's like, who, who is setting the standard? who is being represented, who benefits, and who profits, right? So I think if you ask those questions in this dynamic, as you look at food and how it is is political, really thinking about all of those different ties um, is, is essential. And I can't understate enough the importance of supporting small family-run businesses with take out or whatever you can at this time. So just, I don't know, drink, get high, just get, watch a Guy Fieri marathon. Don't judge me. Things happened. I have needs. Um, and and get hungry and order some fucking takeout. Yeah. And I would like to add really the key piece there is like who's setting the standards um, and then who's, who's getting the brunt of the negative perceptions of Chinese and Asian food. People are viewing Chinese food as being dirty, that it's tied to this virus in some way. And as a result, a lot of these small Asian restaurants are getting the brunt of the lack of business. And so it's really on us to be able to be there to support them and fight against this white supremacist idea of Asian food being dirty and causing disease and everything like that. So, which is not true. <laughs> not true at all. 
So go out and support your local dim sum lady. <laughs> and, and order takeout, even though it's not the same, but do it anyway. And I'm going to double down on that and say, uh, if you want to be involved, if you're more confrontational than uh, spending with your wallet, uh, definitely recommend taking some bystander training through Hollaback. It's ihollaback.org. This is what I recommend everyone do, quite honestly. It's, I think they have a very, very nice framework on how to uh, go from being a bystander into being upstander. So, uh, Michelle, I miss you. <laughs> I'm so glad that we got to speak this evening. Yeah, thank you for um, gracing us with your presence on Interstice. Thank you so much for having me. I miss both of you so very much, and I hope to see y'all um, at some point soon, perhaps. Uh, but this has been really great. Thank you for letting me share me and my family's story here on this episode. Um, it means truly a lot. Uh, and love all of the work that you're doing in this wonderful interstice uh, community. 